Well, this morning we're in Genesis 1, which is on page 1. We're going to read all the way to the end, uh, to 2 verse 3, so we include the seventh day. Just as we read through, it's worth um, looking out for repeated phrases. So as we read our way through Genesis 1, you'll start to see that the same phrases occur a number of times. And so to get us thinking, it's worth to be looking out for those phrases so you can see, because we're going to make reference to them later in the sermon. And it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of the God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that may were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures 
Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every, green, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Well, in a moment we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, let me just remind you, there'll be uh, the opportunity to ask questions at the end of the sermon, so do have that in mind. You have your sermon outline that you can use uh, if you wish. And finally, let's pray and ask God for his help. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to reflect on these words that you have spoken, these words that you spoke and brought us into existence. We pray, Lord, that we would have reverence for your word, knowing that it is, is truly is powerful, and what you say happens. Amen. Well, in Jeremiah 4, verse 23, that we read earlier, we read, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Now what's striking about this image is it brings to mind the very first few verses of Genesis 1. So in verse 2, the earth was without form and void. So whatever has happened during Jeremiah's day it has led to the earth being returned 
to those early stages of creation. There's a return to the point of creation where there is chaos before God has brought order. And we only have to read around the immediate context to appreciate a little of what has happened. So back in Jeremiah 4, reading from verse 22, it says, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and on the hills, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all the cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. God's people do not know him. And the Lord is angry at the disobedience of his people. The effect of God's judgment is that the world has returned to the chaos of the earliest phase of creation. First, the earth is without form. Second, the heavens have no light. There's no man on the earth, no bird in the sky. And the land there's no vegetation, it's become a desert. If you like, creation has been decreated. Now this quick look at Jeremiah 4 helps us to begin to see what's happening when we come to Genesis 1. First of all, we have God's first act of creation. So right back in verse 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase heavens and the earth describe the totality of God's creative action. God created the two extremes, heaven and earth. And what does that leave? Well, nothing. Because God created it all. And then what follows anticipates the next step. We've already mentioned that the lack of form of the earth suggests chaos. So what will follow will bring order. And the presence of the Spirit of God provides an expectation of the next step. Then in verse 3, we have introduced the pattern that will run through the remainder of the passage. So we have, it begins with, and God said. Each act of creation takes place when God speaks. This is followed by God saying, let there be which is God's command, which is swiftly followed by, and there was, or, and it was so. And this is because what God says happens. Then, 
God saw it was good. God evaluates every part of his creation and it never fell full short of his expectation. Rather, that it is good infers that it achieves God's purpose for creation and does so perfectly. God called. God has created his world and now he demonstrates his authority over that which he brought into existence by naming it. And then finally, there was evening, there was morning, the first day. Now Christians often talk about God's mighty word. But often they say a little more than this. I think it's possible to really explore what it means for God's word to be powerful so that we can put some substance behind the statement. In order to do this, the first thing I want to do is make a distinction between the words create and make. So apparently in the Bible, in the Hebrew language at least, the only subject for the word create is God. So it is God who creates. You'd never find Adam creating or Abraham creating. Because humanity, they make things. So it's God who creates while humanity makes things. However, to make something, we have to take part of God's creation and then reshape it or manufacture it into whatever it is that we make. And depending on what we've made, it will take time and will take some effort. Whereas God, well, he doesn't make. He creates. He creates something from nothing. And this is the first point. God doesn't need raw material he brings into existence that which previously didn't exist. The second point is God creates by speaking. It is his word that brings into existence that which didn't exist before. This is the power of God's word. What this means is God's word has the power to cause something that isn't to suddenly materialise. Now we can infer from this that when God says something, what he says will have a guarantee that it will happen. It follows that when God commands that which he brought into existence, well his creation will obey This also has promise, uh, uh, implications upon the promises God speaks. For he makes his promises with the same word that he brought the heavens and the earth into existence. And so a promise made by God has the same guarantee that it will happen. It also raises the question, well who can oppose God? If we think about it this way, the only possible opposition available 
has to be part of God's creation. And since God brought every part of his creation into existence by his word, there's nothing or no one that can oppose God's word because it was by God's word that they exist. We can conclude God's word is powerful. So we have these repeated phrases. But did you notice as we read, read through that both day and three and day six are a little longer? They have two announcements where all the other days only have one. So we can have a quick look in verse nine. And God said. And God separates the waters so dry land appears. Then in verse 11, the second announcement, and God said, and God creates the plants. So two announcements, and that's day three. Then in verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, oh, sorry, living creatures. God creates the creatures on the earth. Then in verse 26, then God said, God creates man. Once again, two announcements, and these occur on day six. So day three and day six, they stand out as being longer, having two announcements, while the other days only have one. But this isn't the only thing that these two days have in common. So remember, verse 9, God creates the dry land. Then in verse 24, God creates the animals, the animals to fill the dry land. Then in verse 11, back in day 3, God creates the plants. Then in verse 29, on day 6, the animals and the man that God has created are given the plants to eat. God creates the land first because only once the land is established can the animals be made to fill it. But if God is going to fill the land with animals, they'll need food. Hence why he first created the plants for food. We can also make connections between those shorter days. Day one, God creates the light. Then in day four, God creates the luminaries that give light on the earth. Day two, God creates the water and sky. Then on day five, God creates the fish to fill the waters and the birds to fill the sky. Far from the chaos of the earth that lacked form in verse two, God has, over time, brought order to the creation. And at the pinnacle of creation... God creates man and woman. And this is where there's a break in a pattern that we've become used to. So have a look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man 
in our image, after our likeness. Instead of let there be, God says, let us make man in our image. Then this makes man and woman unique in God's creation. No other part of creation is made to bear God's image. This means man and woman will be, while being part of God's creation, at the same time are distinct from the rest of creation. And what we see is that creation account provides us with an ethic. First of all, God creates the world, and so we are to think of him in terms of the owner, which is outlined later on in Psalm 24. As the owner, the world belongs to him. And so we, as that which is owned have a responsibility to listen to him because the world he's given to us is his and we belong to him. And if we do not obey him, then we infringe upon his right as owner of creation. God creates through his word what he says happens. And so his word comes with a great authority If he speaks, his creatures should be ready to listen and to obey. Also, God has made us in his image. So how we behave reflects upon the one whose image we bear. And also how we behave against one of his image bearers is an affront to him, as well as the one who bears his image. Now as we come to the end of this morning sermon, we have two more things to briefly consider. The first is a final evaluation by God. Each part of creation has been evaluated by God as good. But in verse 31 we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Every part of God's creation works towards his purpose. But only once God's creation is complete, does God see his creation purpose complete. Now everything is in its place, and everything is as it should be. And this takes us to the seventh day. Everything is complete, everything's very good, which means God is now at rest with his creation. Notice as well that day seven is missing something. There is evening and there is morning, but it's not there. There is no end to day seven. God is to remain at rest with his creation. The second thing to mention is the order of creation. 
We've seen how God has created the world in an order, but he's also established an order in which the world is to run. We've already spoken about how God is the owner of creation. He brings it into existence through his word. He then creates man and woman to bear his image, making them distinct from the rest of the creation, while at the same time being part of creation. He gives man and woman dominion over the earth to fill the earth with image bearers that reflect God's glory. And the man and woman are to rule over God's creation, and they are to do so under God's rule. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we spent a brief amount of time looking at your creation and creation act, we pray, Lord, that we have opportunity to reflect on the implications this has for us as those who were brought into existence through your word as those who have been made in your image, and as those who do not own ourselves, but rather belong to you. We pray, Lord, the implications of this would uh, sink in as we think about who you are and how we relate to you, the uncreated creator. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. Any thoughts, questions or comments? Simon? Certainly, yes. So just repeat the question for the recording. So in verse 2, we have the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Does this mean there's already something there, or is something else going on? Very good question, very helpful as well. So um, we I kind of alluded to it, but only in passing. So... Reading the commentary, apparently there's different ways of taking these two verses. And the traditional view is that actually what's happening here is that verses 1 and 2 is the first phase of God's creation. So this is God's first act of creation. And so verse 3 is God's sort of preceding act of creation that comes afterwards. So the first thing that we have is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. At that point, it's the initial establishing of the earth in its chaos that God will then put into order. So when we read in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, that is that which God has first created in order to continue his creation process of ordering that chaos. Um, now, one of the reasons we want to be going down that line is 
Otherwise, we're going to have problems with God's sovereignty. So if, if God comes along and finds this earth that's without form and void, and then says, oh, I'll start to order this and put this into a structured thing, then all of a sudden God, there's two eternal things. There's God and there's this earth that God stumbled across. Now, if God sort of uses this earth and creates this earth, and there's something wrong with this earth, or there's something faulty with this raw material he's using, then his plans have the potential to be thwarted because there's a other eternal being that could undermine or cause problems for him. But rather, if we, if what we've been thinking about is that he has brought everything into existence out of nothing, then he has willed everything to be as it should be. Therefore, there's nothing to compromise or question or oppose his sovereignty. Happy? Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, any other questions, comments or thoughts? Yes, Susie. Good question. I so let me have a quick think uh, if I can find it. So I think we will come across something that may answer this as we delve deeper into Genesis. Um, but let me give you an initial uh, stab for now. So uh, let me let me provide a few options. So the first one could simply be we're not told everything here. So it's not that there aren't going to be carnivorous animals. It's just that that's not really what's being spoken about here. Not particularly satisfactory, um, and we might want to know a bit more. Um, Another possibility is that it could have been that actually it's there because animals were intended to be plant eaters and it's only after the fall that the circumstances change, which is why I was kind of trying to look for but couldn't find it. So 
that's worth keeping in our minds because we're going to come across it because we're going to keep reading it. Um, another thought is, see, I can't remember whether it comes in. Uh, it might even relate to the flood. I can't remember, but at some time I feel like it's introduced. I can't remember when it's introduced, but all of a sudden meat becomes an option that we can eat. Just can't find it quite at this moment. So it could be that prior to the fall, it's just we're plant eaters and animals plant eaters. And then after, yes, Nathan. Oh wow, that far ahead. Yes, Genesis nine. So and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you. And the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you and as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast, I will require it. And from man, from this fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. And so on. I think that, yeah, very helpful. Thanks, Nathan. So that is um, quite clear then that it wasn't until Noah and after the flood that animals became included uh, an option to eat. Well, hopefully Adrian's got that. So we can return to that question when Adrian can answer it. So is that okay for the minute? Yes. Excellent question, yes. So, uh, just to repeat for the recording, so a question around the rest. How are we to think about God's rest? Um, and, yeah, that's, that's a simple question, version of the question. Um, okay, yes, so, um, I think one of the important things to think about the term rest is that I think, first of all, when we... Th- think of it I think we tend to think sort of lounging around on the sofa watching tv and or sleeping that's not kind of what we've uh, God's got in mind here but rather there's a sense in that he's at rest in that he is at peace with the world so you see that later on when um, God says to David you can't build a, te- uh, a temple for me because you're not at rest with your enemies but when your son is at rest with his with, with your enemies, then you can build a temple. And of course, that rest doesn't mean lounging around, but that means being at peace. So what we have introduced here on the seventh day is not so much that he's having a break from his work, but that everything's perfect, all is well, there's no hostility between humanity and God, 
and everything is at rest or at peace. Now, what will take place um, when we get to Genesis 3 is that I'm going to totally spoil it for you. You know it's coming. The seventh day will come to an end. And as far as the rest that God has with his creation will end when the fall takes place. And so, when God says to his people, you're going to come into the land and you will be at rest in the land, there's a sense in that the promised land is a kind of a return to the Garden of Eden because God will rest, be at rest with his people. There'll be no hostility there. Now, we can take this even further and think in terms of well, what do we anticipate in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, we're actually going to look at this in a moment. Uh, but it's when God will dwell with his people, he will be his people, they will be his, no, he will be their God, they will be his people, and they will live in eternal rest because of what Christ has done, how he's reconciled us. So it's quite crucial to get that seventh day correct because that's going to, I mean, that's setting out what redemption's taken us to. So, excellent question. Okay, that's three questions. Let's leave it there then. Um, we're going to continue reflecting on these things in a moment. But before we do, we're going to stand to sing When I Survey.